If you're one of those uh, freaks that believes Jesus is all to you, would you say amen? amen. Bunch of freaks. Can I pray with you? Let's pray about what we're about to encounter here in God's Word. Father, thank you for what we were just able to declare. We would willingly consider ourselves as those who are aliens and strangers to this world if it means leaving everything else behind and gaining you. And it's very easy for us to say that in our heart and in our, our lips, God, what we would ask is that you would help us to mean that. So as we examine your word now, and we look at what was written thousands of years ago for our benefit, for our knowledge, your word says specifically that you moved men of old to write things that would encourage and teach and rebuke and exhort. And through the process, you will mature us and help us to gain an understanding of who you are But Father, in the midst of this, help us to see who we are in light of who you are. So we examine your word for that purpose, that we would know you better, that we would know ourselves better. And then in turn, that we would reflect you to this world that's watching us. We we open up your word right now and ask that you would guide us, lead us, instruct us. Let your Holy Spirit fill this auditorium and be our teacher. It's in Jesus' name we pray, amen. If you are where I'm at, we're in Hebrews chapter 13 this morning and verse 10. If you didn't bring a Bible with you, you'll find them in the, in the racks in front of you. And if you don't own one, there's some in the back. Feel free to take one with you when you leave today. It's free. We want you to have a copy of God's Word. It's the most important thing you can own. So I found uh, Jesus to be coming out of the text in Hebrews in many different ways. I, I'm sure you have seen it with a argument here in the midst of the text is that Jesus is better, and I would ask you perhaps after the service if we get a chance to connect that maybe you would tell me some of the ways that you discovered that Jesus is better in the midst of Hebrews in in the study. What were your big takeaways? What did you learn about him? Here's one that I learned this week. Jesus is like my iPhone. Well, actually, this is a Samsung. It's not an iPhone, but if you have an iPhone or a Samsung, a smartphone, would you pull it out, maybe a Nokia or something like that, and, I know, permission in church to use your smartphone. I'm going to explain this before you wonder where in the world I'm going with this. I find that discovering new life in Jesus is a lot like these modern smartphones. Extraordinarily sleek, simple, one button, if you're in the front row, you can see there's a picture of me on my own phone. <laughs> my daughters are mortified that I put a picture of myself on a pink bench on the front of my phone. So we, we've got these phones that are so clean and so simple, and with one button, it opens up an amazing world inside. Now you may not own a smartphone, but just follow me on this analogy. It's incredibly intricate on the inside, what it does boggles the mind. When we discover new life in Jesus, we find it to be incredibly simple on the outside. As a matter of fact, two really very basic points. Let me show you these just very basic things that we know about the truth of who we are. Number one, we're fallen people. It's not a newsflash. 
Our fall is number one in Adam, we're sinners. And, and number two, our recovery is in Jesus. So we're sinners in need of a savior. That's it, that's as basic as it gets. So, so like our smartphones, really simple on the outside, incredibly complicated on the inside because as simple as this message is, and even a child can get it, because of the complexity of your mind, and God knows you are complex. He wired you, he made you, he understands the way that you process information. So because of the complexity of the human mind, God provides mechanisms to help us drink in this truth and process what he's done for us in Jesus so that we can really grasp the, the, as much as we're capable of the totality of what this is. So in your Bible that you hold in your hands this morning, we have this inexhaustible supply of illustrations by which to grasp this complex simplicity. Uh, this week I was working through that thought of complex simplicity, simple complexity. How can, can I make a word out of that? And I thought, simplexity, simplexity. I think I coined a new word. So I was patting myself on the back for a while until I Googled the word just to see if anybody else had ever thought up the word simplexity. 1924. Some journalist, you're writing a news article, put down the word simplexity, but when I come to this understanding of what we found in the book of Hebrews, the Old Testament system was designed by God to illuminate this, this really great distinction between complexity and simplicity. So here's what I found in the book of Hebrews. This author is a master at utilizing the contrast between what was the old life and the very complex system in the sacrificial legal system and using it to shine a light on the simplicity of what salvation is in Jesus. So it's only fitting that he's gonna end our journey today with this really familiar type contrast in the midst of it showing us that Jesus is better. So here's the mode that he uses today as we come into these last few verses. He uses the imagery of an altar. And we've talked about the priest, we've talked about the sacrificial system, we talked about the holy of holies, everything that would be important to a Hebrew at that time. But what he's never brought up is the altar, the, the place where people actually placed the sacrifices, that instrument by which they had access to God. It was the mode or the mechanism. So this author is about to remind us, and he was reminding them, that because Jesus is better, we have a far superior altar. Let's discover what that is right now as we go to verse 10. And understand as you come into this, he's presuming that the readers of this passage thoroughly understand the Old Testament system. Look with me at verse 10. We have an altar from which those who serve the tent have no right to eat. For the bodies of those animals whose blood is brought into the holy place by the high priest as a sacrifice for sin are burned outside the camp. Well, who are those people who serve at the tent? That's the first question you would ask when you look at that passage. Well, he's obviously talking about the priest, the, the Jewish priest who served at the tabernacle, and they served in the sacrificial system. So here's the way the priestal system worked. Ultimately, they gained their groceries each day from what people brought to the sacrificial system and the altar. Now, obviously, when they brought a lamb or they brought a cow or they brought a goat, it was used for the sacrifice, but the whole animal wasn't used. And so the remains, things that were left over, were for the priests to eat because they were not part of the inheritance of the tribe of Israel. The 11 tribes, other than Levi, got an inheritance of land. 
but the tribe of Levi got no inheritance whatsoever. And so they didn't have land, they didn't have possessions, so they were able to get their groceries, literally, from what came in through the sacrificial system. They got the remains 364 days of the year. The 365 day, day atonement, the day of sin offerings, they could never eat that meat. That was not available to them because God said, you're not going to eat what was brought to me as an offering for sin. So on the day of atonement, the remains of the bodies of the animals was taken out into the valley of Ben-Hinnom outside the gate of Jerusalem and left in the dump to be destroyed and to be burned. That's what he's referring to here in this passage. So the bodies of the animals are taken for the sacrifice and they're taken outside and they're destroyed. So when he says in verse 10, those who serve at the tent have no right, he's talking about people who are caught up in the legal system of trying to earn their way to God. Those who are caught up in Judaism or those today who are still trying to earn their way to God, they have no right because they've rejected Jesus. They're, they're not coming through Jesus, they're trying to come through their heart in terms of earning their way. And he's judging the condition of their heart. So he says in verse 10, we have an altar. We have an altar. Now, you understand an altar was used specifically for sacrifices. It's what it was made for. It's what it's designed for. So for the new covenant Christian, for a believer today, our altar is Jesus because he's the one who brings us before God and gives us access to God. So through him, we offer up spiritual sacrifices. Here's an example. Peter said this. 1 Peter 2, you also as living stones are being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood to offer up spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus. See, Jesus becomes your source, your altar, by which you bring sacrifices. You just did that within the last 20 minutes. You brought sacrifice of praise. Here's an example. Let your eyes drift down to verse 15, or look with me up on the screen. Verse 15 says, Through him, then let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. See, one of the things that we offer to God is praise. We'll get into that in just a minute, what that really means to praise him. Let's move forward because he's got this imagery going on about these bodies being destroyed. Go with me to verse 12. So Jesus also suffered outside the gate in order to sanctify the people through his own blood. Therefore, let us go to him outside the camp and bear the reproach he endured. Verse 14, for here we have no lasting city, but we seek the city that is to come. So when he says, therefore, let us go to him, here's an emphasis on separation. That we go to him means we're going to this place of reproach. Why? Jesus suffered and died outside the gate, the place where the body was destroyed, using this very familiar analogy. So because Jesus suffered outside the gate, anybody going to him is going to a place of reproach. Jesus wasn't crucified inside the city, was he? He was crucified at what we call Golgotha, a mountain of stone where they erected the cross. It's a place nobody wanted to go. It's where death occurred. It's where criminals were destroyed. So it's this place of reproach. And he understands very clearly, Jesus suffered outside the gate, so we're going to go to him. So he's got this image now of the altar in our minds. And for these first century recipients of this letter, he brings up the concept of the sacrifice. It is very proper for you to speak of the cross as the altar on which Jesus was sacrificed, according to this imagery that's going on here. So why bring up the concept of the cross? 
Why bring up the destruction of Jesus' body at this point? Well, because the cross is much more than a piece of jewelry, right? I mean, a Muslim's not going to wear a cross on them. A Hindu is not going to wear a cross on them. It's distinctive to Christians, and it's much more than a piece of jewelry. But why bring it up here? Because these readers, as we've learned over these course of these many weeks, are looking for a way to remain in the Christian faith, but yet stay away from persecution. The, the whole theme is they're trying to get back to what they know is safe in Judaism, yet they don't want to abandon Christ because they know that he's real, he's true. So the author is saying there is no room for compromise. We go out to this place where Jesus was rejected by men. It's the place of reproach. Well, why did he go out? Look at verse 12 very closely. It says, he went out to sanctify you in order to sanctify the people. Now, the word sanctify, whenever you see it in the New Testament, is the word hagiads. I didn't say hagandas, like ice cream, okay? Hagiads or hagiadzo. It means to be set apart, to be set apart for God. So when he uses the word sanctify, that Jesus went out to sanctify, he did it to set you apart for God. How did he do that? We're told in verse 12, he affected this through his own blood. See, here's what the emphasis is. Jesus didn't need another earthly priest to offer up his body or his blood as the sacrifice. He did it in himself. He brought about the sanctification by the sacrifice of himself. He didn't need an external source. So that's why he says in verse 13, let us go out to him bearing his reproach. I want to drill down into this because it's a really practical point for you in 2014. We really need to get this in our head that we would be willing to go out from the world is his point. That we would be willing to leave what we consider safe, familiar, the old lifestyle, even when it cost us a great deal to go out to this place of reproach and know this implicit in the course of the going out is that you're gonna be rejected. It may look different in your life than what it looks in my life, but you're gonna be rejected by men. Do you know that Moses had this exact same attitude? We glossed over chapter 11 because we're coming back to it in four weeks when we start a series called The Heroes of the Faith or I Need a Hero. But we're told in chapter 11, verse 26, that Moses had the same thought in his mind. Look with me on the screen. Moses, considering the reproach of Christ, greater riches than the treasure of Egypt, for he was looking to the reward. See, Moses accepted the disgrace. As a matter of fact, it's the exact same language in chapter 11 as it is in verse 13. What is so significant about that? Moses had it easy. He's the son of Pharaoh for crying out loud. I mean, people are putting grapes in his mouth. Women are fanning him with palm branches. He lives in the Middle East. It's a good life. But he's willing to reject all of that for who Jesus is, for the Christ, we're told here. He's willing to take on the shame and the remorse. Do you know that kind of separation is really costly? It requires a great deal from you and I to bear the reproach of Christ. It has absolutely unlimited categories. Matter of fact, Scripture doesn't even try and qualify it. It just says this, 2 Timothy 3.12, all who desire to live godly in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. See, to align yourself with Jesus is to subject yourself to ridicule. Not exactly consumer-friendly information, right? 
I mean, this isn't the kind of stuff that you, you would teach trying to get people to become a Christian, but it's a reality for people who are Christians, and it needs to be told and taught because it's the reality of our faith. Matter of fact, there's warnings all the way throughout the New Testament about how this is amped up in your life. Here's an example of one of those. 2 Corinthians 6, do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have the righteous and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness, or what harmony has Christ with Belial? Belial is another name for Satan. Or what has a believer in common with an unbeliever? So he's really talking about separation, so you wanna ask yourself the question, separation from what? How does this flesh out in my life? Well, for the Hebrews living in the first century, receiving this writing was telling them to separate themselves from the world system, meaning the legalistic, Judaistic system of trying to earn their way to God, to work their way into a place where God would like them better. God was no longer in the camp of Judaism when Jesus was crucified on the cross. The Old Testament system went out of need. It was invalidated at that point. So what we're really talking about here is not a place of separation or not a destination of separation. So you and I are not talking about becoming preppers, right? We're not talking about hiding ourselves down in bunkers. Separation doesn't mean becoming Amish. Separation doesn't mean becoming a monk or going out and living in a commune. Separation from the system means separation from the world system of doing things, our thoughts, our actions. So we wanna understand very clearly, he's not talking about avoiding contact with unbelievers. If that was the case, we'd never be a witness, right? It wouldn't be possible. Matter of fact, Jesus nailed this door shut very clearly in a high priestly prayer. John 17, 15 says this, Jesus talking to the Father, I do not ask you to take them out of the world, but to keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, I also have sent them into the world. See, God doesn't take us out. God sends us in. He sends us into the world where people live. So biblically, here's what we're talking about with separation. It's separation from the world system of behavior. Are my actions like Jesus' actions? Are my actions like the world system? Is my behavior like Jesus' behavior? Or is my behavior like the old system that I used to be part of? Whatever that might have been. See, you're really checking your action, you're checking your attitude here. There's some very familiar language coming up in the next verse where he really speaks what they understand. Go with me to verse 15. Through him then, let us continually offer up a sacrifice of praise to God. That is the fruit of lips that acknowledge his name. So when he says sacrifice, if I am a first century Jew, my mind immediately is going to the altar, the temple, the lambs being brought in, the day of atonement, and I'm thinking of this sacrifice because sacrifice was extremely important to a first century Jew because they knew that that was God's way of cleansing sin under the Old Testament. But here we have Hebrew Christians who have identified themselves with Jesus who have left the old system, their old way of life, and come into this new life in Jesus, and they know that Jesus is the one and only sacrifice, but under a Jewish system, they know that there's many sacrifices. They know there's five. 
There's not just a sacrifice for sin. There's a sacrifice for guilt. There's a sacrifice for grain. There's a sacrifice for fellowship. Does God demand more sacrifices? Is he requiring more of us? Well, in part, if they're wondering that, the answer is yes. God does demand more sacrifices, but it's not ritualistic sacrifices. We want to understand, we're talking about word and deed. So if you look at verse 15 and verse 16, he talks about two really common sacrifices for Christians today. And the first one is this continual praise to God, bringing it up as a sacrifice before him. Why? Because the words of praise that come from our hearts, when we're thankfully praising God, he's saying this is like fruit put on a silver platter, laid up on the altar before the God who provided things for you. It's pleasing in his sight. Here's the contrast. It is really, really easy when you're suffering to complain. When you've been done wrong, you want to let people know. When you're hurting, you want your friends to know. When things are not going your way, you want the world to know. We just are naturally that way as humans. Can you imagine if you're watching your friends, your brothers and sisters in Christ being thrown to the lions and you're in fear for your life? The temptation is in the midst of a trial to complain. Conversely, how important is the midst, in the midst of that trial to turn the complaining into praise? God is good. God is great. God is gracious. You know, I have an aunt in my life, uh, one remaining um, member of the family generation that's gone beyond me, my mom's sister, Aunt Joyce, she's 82 years old now. You cannot get that woman to complain. She just won't do it. She, she had shoulder surgery a few months ago, and you'd see her, and she's in this cast all bound up, and say, Aunt Joyce, how you doing? God is good. God is just so good. She just won't complain. I want to be that way. I want to be that way now before I'm 82. She's just over the course of her lifetime learned how to turn complaining into joy. He says in verse 15, we're supposed to do this continually. See why this is important to the first century Jew? They offered sacrifices at 9 in the morning and 12 in noon and 3 in the afternoon. They didn't do it continually. He says continually offer up sacrifices. Why? Because God's working in your life continually, constantly working out his purposes so there's no circumstances in which he shouldn't be praised. That's kind of the thinking that goes behind 1 Thessalonians 5. It says this, rejoice always, pray without ceasing, in everything give thanks, for this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. You're wondering about God's will for your life? There it is. People ask me that all the time. How do I discover God's will for my life? You show them that and they get a blank look on their face. And when it says pray without ceasing, it doesn't mean pray with your eyes closed driving down the highway, okay? We're talking about an attitude of prayer. Constantly on your mind, what God has done for you, you're rejoicing always in everything, giving thanks. He tells us in verse 15, this is a sacrifice of praise to God. Let me just expand just for a moment on these five forms of sacrifices because this will make sense to you. The first two sacrifices were mandatory. The, the sin and the guilt offering had to do it. wasn't a choice. If you were in that system at that time, you had to make an offering before God. But there was no sacrifice of praise at that point. Who wants to turn that kind of a sacrifice into praise? But the other three, they were voluntary. 
the fellowship offering, the burnt offering, the grain offering. Those things you could do willingly. And as a result of God's activity in your life, in connection with those things, turn it into praise. And it would turn, as a result, into joy. Here's an example from King David, Psalm 717. He, he says, I will give thanks to the Lord according to his righteousness, and I will sing praise to the name of the Lord Most High. Now, that's good when things are going good. But what about when things are going rotten? What about when you didn't get the job that you wanted to get, or you got fired from the job that you had? What about when your friends abandoned you? Or you hear that your friends have said things about you. What about when you're going through times of persecution? You've gone out to this place of reproach and man begins talking about you and you feel persecuted. What can you offer up then when you feel like you've got nothing? It's very interesting that he would use the fruit of the lips in verse 15 because that's an echo of Isaiah 57 and Hosea 5 in which the children of Israel found themselves in prison in Babylon. Old Testament history, very briefly, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of what we would call Iran today, the king of Babylon, swept into Israel, wiped out Israel, killed lots and lots of people, hauled Israel away to captivity in Babylon. Those who were alive became slaves. They were destitute. They had no more temple. Nebuchadnezzar destroyed their temple. They had no more sacrificial system. They couldn't make offerings. They didn't even own a cow. So they're left with nothing. What are they going to offer in the midst of a time like that? Well, passages like these were used by the Israelites in the midst of their brokenness to offer up the one thing they did have, verbal praise. God, you're my rock, my high tower, my strength, my deliverer, the one in whom I can trust. That's where those writings come out of. So for believers in 2014, what does praise to God look like today? Jesus, you're all to us. It's our confession of who Jesus is. You're all to us. Even when we possess nothing, we possess the capacity to verbally praise him. That's part of the thought behind Romans chapter 10. If you haven't seen this in a while, let me put this on the screen for you. Romans 10, 9. If you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart a person believes, resulting in righteousness, and with the mouth he confesses, resulting in salvation. It's kind of interconnected. I'm not talking about you say it often enough and you earn your salvation. That's not what we're talking about here. We're saying that this naturally flows out of you. You confess Jesus as your Lord and Savior. If you belong to him, it's evidence that you are saved. So that was the first one. Here's the second one. An another spiritual sacrifice, it might be surprising to you, it comes out of verse 16. It says, do not neglect to do good and share what you have for such sacrifices. See, doing good is a sacrifice. Such sacrifices are pleasing to God. This includes what we talked about last week when we talked about entertaining strangers the hospitality shown to those who are outside your comfort zone, bringing people into your world. We talked about people who were in prison, those who were in trauma. See, doing good covers a really vast category. So in your world, it might be sharing food with somebody in need. It might be sharing your money. It might mean giving somebody a ride to church or to the grocery store. 
I know of people who have come to faith in Jesus Christ because their neighbor was a believer and came over and mowed their lawn when their lawnmower was broken down. That's the kind of doing good that opens up doors for conversation. So in the first century world, for these Jewish Christians, put it in their context, good things referred to a weekly offering at the church, bringing their finances in to help care for the poor and needy. They thought of that as doing good as an act of righteousness before God. Here's the point. In God's economy, praising Him in your words, in your lips, is absolutely inseparable with your actions. The two go together. Praise the fruit of the lips, praise the fruit of your actions. The two are together. See, Christ's suffering outside the gate in this place of reproach absolutely alters everything. Totally changes the way you think and the way that you conduct your life. And he, he closes out by giving us some really basic instructions in verse 17. He says it this way, Obey your leaders and submit to them, for they are keeping watch over your souls. As those who will have to give an account, let them do this with joy and not with groaning, for that would be of no advantage to you. We know someday, future, in, in our planet here, planet Earth, will be ruled by the King of Kings. Amen? Yeah. Amen, okay? We know that, but that's future. In the meantime, while we wait for the return of the King, we have been given leaders. Leaders in government, and leaders within the church. So presently, God rules his church through spirit-controlled leaders, what we call elders here at New Hope. Why do we call them elders? Well, not because they're old. Well, some of them are, but um, <laughs> Scripture says they're elders in spirit. They're mature in their faith. And so we have identified individuals, not, they're not the only ones, but we've identified individuals who serve as elders, these mature men who are under the, the guidance of God, ordered by the Spirit of God to lead here on earth. And we get those guidelines out of Titus chapter 1. Every single New Testament congregation, every Bible church had men like these, and their responsibility is to shepherd the flock, and they exercise oversight. There's an important reason why he's saying this. Peter speaks to this very issue, 1 Peter 5.3. These elders do this with eagerness, not yet, though, as lording it over those allotted to their charge, but proving to be examples to the flock. So just as elders lead in love and they lead in humility, those they lead submit in love and in humility. The New Testament is replete with this request because it's a witness to the watching world. Here's another example from 1 Thessalonians 5.12. But we request of you, brethren, that you appreciate those who diligently labor among you and have charge over you in the Lord and give you instruction and that you esteem them very highly in love because of their work. Why? Because when you do not have spirit-filled leaders who do not lead from God's word and who do not rule well, then you're not going to have people who are going to submit well and obey well, and you end up with chaos in the church as we see blanketed across this nation today. And the church becomes a laughing stock to a watching world who think, that's Jesus? I want no part of that. So God has a system and an order by which he establishes things. And 17, verse 17, scares me to death because it says, I have to give an account I have to stand before God and give an account for how I'm teaching and how you hear this truth and how it's applied and, and the function of this church and its effectiveness. So you can see why when he gets to verse 18, he says, will, will you pray for me 
Because you've got to stand before God. Look, look at verse 18. Pray for us, for we are sure that we have a clear conscience, desiring to act honorably in all things. I urge you more earnestly to do this in order that I may be restored to you the sooner. It's kind of cryptic. But this author understands that his coming to them, being released from what appears to be prison, is absolutely related to their prayer life. Why? Because your prayer life releases God's power. Praying for your leadership and your leadership praying for you is absolutely crucial in God's economy. Uh, whomever this author is, he's clearly being held from coming to them. You'll see that a little bit more in just a moment. Building to a crescendo now, verse 20. Now may the God of peace who brought again from the dead our Lord Jesus, the great shepherd of the sheep, by the blood of the eternal covenant, equip you with everything good that you may do his will, working in us that which is pleasing in his sight, through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen. He's calling on God. That's what this benediction is. Now, I think I find kind of a fascinating benediction. I don't ever remember studying benedictions before, but you want to pay close attention to this one because here's what he's done. It's absolutely amazing. He's taken all the major themes of what we've studied in Hebrews and condensed it down to two sentences. He's talking specifically about the God of peace and the resurrected Jesus and the blood and the covenant and spiritual maturity and God's working in your life. And he's boiled it all down to two sentences. And here's what he's doing. He's asking for the power of God to be released in your life. The God who has the power to resurrect Jesus from the dead. Grasp the magnitude of that. That God delivering that power. The one who has that kind of power can certainly work through frail little Mark Kring, right? He can certainly work through you. That kind of power is what he's asking for. Here's what else comes to me out of that. I not only need to know God's will, I must have his power to accomplish his will. We have studied theology. We have studied doctrine. And it matters not two hoots if we only know it and we never use it. It doesn't matter to know more about God if it doesn't change your life. It doesn't matter to know right doctrine if there's no effect. It's absolutely useless to try and live a Christ-like life without God's power. So logically, he's saying, God, release your power in them. Why? Because we need the God whose power surpasses death to equip us in order to accomplish his purposes. So remember it this way as you leave. If you're going to accomplish God-sized purposes in your life, you need God-sized power. If you're going to carry out God-sized purposes, and you've seen in Hebrews what you've been called to, if you're going to carry those things out, you need God-sized power because you can't do it in your own strength. And men, I am especially speaking to you because I am one. And I am one who watches the do-it-yourself channel just like you do. I could put DIY across my forehead. I try and do it myself all the time. Am I, am I the only one here, guys? Do you identify with that? Okay. So because we try and do it ourselves all the time, we tend to forget that we need God to equip us. I'm not leaving you ladies out. I know that you're capable of doing the same thing, but men seem to be far more wired that way. And we forget we need God to equip us with everything good 
to do his will. So I leave you with one Greek word this morning, kartatidzo. It's the word equip. Just one simple short word in the Greek language, which is not familiar to you, but if you were living in the first century, incredibly familiar if you were a doctor or a sailor or a soldier. Because of the meaning behind this particular word, equip you, kartatizo, it, it meant that when you showed up at the doctor's office with a broken leg, the doctor's purpose was to thoroughly mend your bone, to reset what is broken so that you can walk again. If you were a sailor or a fisherman with a broken net and you had a hole in your net, you would bring it to a net mender who would cartatizo that net and bring that hole back together again. If you were sailing on a voyage, it meant to equip your ship. And if you were a soldier, it meant to outfit you for war. See, Jesus is willing, and not only willing, he wants to equip us, and he will equip us. He wants to set the broken bones in our life, the things that are damaged, the holes that need mending, the repair that needs to take a place. Why? So that we can walk straight, so that he can mature us, so that he can work in us. How does he equip us? How does that actually happen? I'm not gonna get into it right now, but if you look on the right-hand side of your notes, I listed five ways that Jesus will equip you. You see it very briefly on the screen, but understand that when you look at the explanation, look at the verses this afternoon that go with the explanation because they're so important for you to understand how he does this through the church. I close with this thought. Would it make a difference to you? I know it would to me. Would it make a difference to you in your life if you could take Hebrews 13, 20, and 21 and turn them into a prayer each day and that you could start out your day with that mindset? Here, here's what it might sound like for you. This is what it sounds like for me. Lord God, would you equip me today to do your will? Would you equip me to do the things that are pleasing in your sight and do it through the power that resurrected Jesus, through the Holy Spirit that indwells me? Would you equip me that way? And it could sound like this. Father, I'm going to school today and I'm probably gonna be persecuted because I bear the name of Christ. Will you equip me to do the things that are pleasing in your sight. Father, I'm going to the office today. Will you equip me to bear your name, to do the things that are pleasing in your sight? However it fits your world, asking God, putting away the do-it-yourself program and asking God to equip you as you take on the day. There's a change in thinking there. Let's close with verse 22. I appeal to you, brothers, bear with my word of exhortation, for I have written to you briefly. Anybody here feel like this has been brief? Doesn't feel brief, okay? Verse 23, you should know that our brother Timothy has been released, with whom I shall see you if he comes soon. I have found this writing to be extremely straightforward and absolutely uncompromising. And I, I have found that it, it, it expands my mind. At times, it has left me with incredibly raw emotion. There's times when I've been pouring over these materials, I've just begun weeping, literally, because of what I've discovered about Jesus that I hadn't even seen before. 
Yet I would confess to you, it's, it's been complicated and a bit taxing at times. But even with all that, he says, I've written to you briefly. See, it's, it's the brilliance of the Bible. Did you know that you can read the book of Hebrews in less than one hour? If you start chapter one and go to chapter 13, if you don't get distracted, it's not even 10,000 words. It's the brilliance of the Bible that he's written briefly. It's amazingly short in comparison to the complex eternal truths within it. It's, it's like an iPhone. It's just incredibly clean on the outside, but so amazing underneath in what it does. He closes this way, verse 24, greet all your leaders with all and all the saints. Those who come from Italy send you greetings. Grace be with you all. I hear this ancient voice and it's just echoing down the corridors. Jesus is better. Do you hear that new hope? Jesus is better. He's, he's echoing across the corridors of time. Be confident. Be courageous. Be strong in your convictions. Jesus is better. Jesus is better. He's one of those guys in the grandstands now that we talked about in chapter 10. And he stands looking at us saying, Jesus is better. Let's pray.